Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, all three of us co-hosts will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network as we discuss diseases in the Bible. All right, Chris, where did this crazy idea come from? Uh, the reality is, I have no idea where this came from. <laughs> <laughs> we needed a topic, and so we thought, how about diseases of the Bible? No, I mean, in reality, or seriously, I think it actually came from discussions of your book, Tom, uh, on the Passion and Crucifixion, because I think, at least for me, and reading that book and in a lot of our discussions about that book, it became clear that crucifixion is pretty medical, but a lot of a lot of the Bible is pretty medical. I mean, if you think about the story of salvation history, yes. there's a lot of medicine in there because there's a lot of disease and there's a lot of miracles that relieve horrible diseases in some cases. So even even outside of medical nerds like us, I think it's hard not to think about medical stuff when you're thinking about the Bible and some of the great stories. Yeah, one, one time I, I heard a sermon and the priest was highlighting how Jesus would always heal as he's preaching. Now, just a minute, Andrew. Do priests give sermons? We are Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, getting technical. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. No, actually, ecumenical. That's it. Ecumenical. I like that. Well done, Chris. It was in a tent. I don't know. <laughs> but, 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 but it was a sermon. No. But diseases are a fundamental part, you know, of our history. It's it's inescapable. So what was what was in this sermon? <laughs> well, basically, you know, the take home I I thought it was interesting being in in healthcare was that Jesus would always heal and usually before he would preach not only as a sign but also to to bring people in that okay he he wants your goodness and then okay here's the healing and here's the preaching you know follow me well if you've watched any of the chosen TV series, which is just incredible. One of the most moving scenes is when there's the miraculous catch of fish in Peter, Andrew, James, and John's boat. Yeah. And if you follow that scene in the Bible, what is the first thing it says Jesus does with the knuckleheads who decide to follow him? He went about healing. It's the next verse in Matthew chapter 5. He went about healing. So healing was an essential part of his ministry. So, yeah, because I didn't believe he was who he said he was until he did something no one else could do. And we're going to talk about it more in this episode. But, you know, disease is bad today. That's been universally true Amen. through time. But disease then was even worse. I can't imagine. I mean, there was no cradle family medicine to go to or fertility midwifery clinic. <laughs> yeah, clearly the dark ages. The dark ages. <laughs> but we have been brought into... The light. Andrew, what do you think it was like, you know, 200 years ago? I mean, there have been general practitioners forever. Your specialty would have been radically different. Yeah, it's it's incredible to think. I mean, I reflected on this a lot going through training, like lucky dogs like you guys who went to medical school back then didn't have to learn nearly as much as I did. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes. I was in medical school right around the time electricity was coming out, <laughs> so everything's changed. Yeah, and I think we had white blood cells and red blood cells in our hematology <laughs> It <course>. is just <laughs> exponential what, what medicine is doing. And so even 200 years ago, I mean, when did they start coming up with the idea of disease? Maybe 500 years ago. But like transmissible viruses and yeah. germs, I mean, these are all relatively new ideas. Well, I think about simple things, antibiotics, pain control, you know, yeah. the ability to actually give someone a medication to address maybe insufferable pain, that's new. Uh, not to us, but it's new to the world and to history. So we are going to take a time-traveling trip today 2,000 years ago and before, but before we can even do that, we've got our medical trivia question of the day. Our category, ancient medicine. So, mm. one of the most common ancient surgical procedures performed, and the oldest one for which we have archaeological evidence, even several thousand years ago, was called trepanation and also called trephination. The question for you is what was this procedure known as trephination and what types of conditions was it meant to treat? You're going to have to wait around till the end of the show to find out the answer to this question, but we'll be back with fascinating stuff about diseases in the Bible right after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our discussion of diseases of the Bible. And I think it's impossible to start this discussion with anything other than leprosy. Tom, you are the resident skin expert. 
that would be me. So, yeah, uh, leprosy, you know, you hear about it growing up and it has this awful connotation. It's like, what is it? What was it? And is what it is and what it was the same thing? I think leprosy. I think Hawaii. Yes. Well, (laughs) St. Damien. St. Damien of Molokai, who actually contracted leprosy. And we're going to discuss how hard that was actually to do. Mm. It's really hard to contract the disease of leprosy. Have you ever treated anybody with leprosy? I've seen patients with leprosy. Mm. When I was traveling in the Philippines during my uh, fourth year of medical school, uh, and also, until oh, around 2000, there was one leprosy hospital remaining in the continental United States, down in a place called Carville, Louisiana. Hmm. And during my uh, f- second year of residency, we actually flew to New Orleans, um, or actually to Baton Rouge, it was closer to Carville, and we saw some patients who had grown up, had leprosy, and they had you know some profound neurologic and uh, problems and missing certain digits or extremities oh, wow. because of it. And we'll, we'll get into that too. Yeah, so I, we can't talk about leprosy and unclean, I don't think, if any of our listeners are paying attention to Father Mike and the Bible through a year. I've certainly been doing that. I'm a little behind, although he <laughs> says you can't be behind. But I've just been listening through a lot of the stuff on the rituals of cleanliness oh my and, gosh, yes. and getting over leprosy and being, you know, put in a room for seven days and then seven more days after that. And, uh, and that, that hasn't happened anywhere recently in the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But take us through that, Tom. Well, so leprosy, apparently, we heard Father Mike say it 68 times, at least that word, 68 times in the Bible. And the original word from the Old Testament that is now translated as leprosy is a Hebrew word, sounds like seraat. It's T-Z-A-R-A-A-T, seraat. It comes from a word meaning to smite. And so I remember when Father Mike was reading through Leviticus 13, 14, I actually wasn't driving in my car at the time. I was at home. So I pulled out a Bible. And when you go through there, my gosh, I mean, I'm like, I am going to figure out what skin disease he is talking about here, (laughs) right? Okay, so it talks about, you know, having a leprous disease on the skin of his body. Great. A disease spot. Great. If the hair in the disease spot turns (laughs) white, uh, okay. If the spot on the skin turns white, but it's no deeper than the skin, but how can it be in the skin? Okay, not but not deeper than skin. Okay. They need a uh, biopsy. Right. Yeah, but there were no biopsies. <laughs> That's an excellent But reading idea. reading Leviticus is like reading an ancient dermatology textbook. At least those two chapters. Yeah. Or, or you might have quick, raw flesh in the swelling. You might have a chronic leprosy or a non-chronic. It can all turn white. It can turn yellow. But then it gets really bizarre because then your clothes can have it. Then the walls <laughs> of your house can have right. it. And it's I just... like threw... cat in the hat, you know, and the spot goes everywhere. That was it. It was. <laughs> Theodore Geisel back, you know, well, you know, when was Leviticus written? Leviticus was finalized during the Babylonian exile, like uh, six, seven hundred years, or no, six hundred years before the time of Christ in the sixth century uh, BC. So my conclusion was that there is no conclusion. There is no one disease talking about. I've read in a bunch of dermatology texts where these Jewish dermatologists try to figure out what was going on in Leviticus, and they all point out the same thing. This was about ritual uncleanliness and almost no diseases would meet the criteria and what's really weird it talks about you said the seven days if it goes away after seven days it's not leprosy if it doesn't go away do another seven days Mm. if it doesn't go away after 14 days then you got a chronic problem those are the people that lived outside the community that's sort of how i've always described dermatology as a medical practice you know (laughs) hurry up and treat it before it goes away on its own (laughs) oh sorry don't tell people our trade secrets yeah (laughs) yeah so um wow uh, I, I was just trying to wrap my head around that. Didn't work so well. So, you know, the uh, this idea of clean, unclean leprosy, yes. w- most of us think about leprosy. It's an eruptive skin disease. That's an unclean thing. And And I like, speaking of Father Mike, how he talks about a lot of times our modern desire to naturalize the supernatural. But his idea yes. of... The unclean ritualistic practices in ancient Judaism wasn't about hygiene. That was about a spiritual cleanliness right. and whether or not you could enter the temple appropriately or not. Yes. And we're going to talk about that more with some of our other diseases of the Bible. Correct. But it's easy to say, oh, the ancient Jews had these traditions because it was hygienical and they were trying to prevent the transmission of the disease. That's really not true at all. This was about spiritual cleanliness, wasn't it? That is what the commentators sound like they're saying, especially when you, you will learn, bottom line, what they're talking about in Leviticus 
was not what we today call leprosy. Mm, interesting. Well, and what's the fascination with the skin diseases? You can I'm see like, them. There's, uh, there's nothing in Leviticus about, hey, this person's got infectious diarrhea. We should quarantine <laughs> them. I'd be way more worried about that than a skin disease. That's a really good point, Andrew. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, but, yeah, you can't look at somebody unless they're actually in the act uh, and if they're in the act, they're probably hidden from view. <laughs> Whereas the skin, I mean, and that's one of the attractions of dermatology is I can look at something and say, hey, this is what you have. Yeah. Or with a very simple test, biopsy, uh, figure it out. Well, let's think about leprosy and uh, less ancient times. So move on to New Testament uh, and leprosy. Well, I think, I think we should stick a little bit, a uh, couple of great examples in oh. the old, which will lead us to the new. Uh, for example, um, Moses' big sister makes fun of him. Mm-hmm. And what happens to her? <laughs> She's made leprous as white as snow until she, uh, you know, that's just Miriam. Uh, and then Moses prays for her and they, um, you know, they have a good rapprochement. They're uh, back together. And then you've got one of my favorite uh, stories in the Old Testament is Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the army uh, of Syria and he has leprosy. And who is it? This little Jewish slave girl says to him because she, she's her, his slave, you know, go to Elisha hmm. in the land of Israel. And he's cleansed in the land of um, Israel by washing the Jordan. But what's really fascinating is Naaman wanted to give Elisha money. And he said, no, no. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, goes behind Elisha's back. Yeah, I'll take some of that, that uh, bling that you have. And what happens? It says that he was afflicted with leprosy. He and all of his generations were turned completely white. See, that's incredible. I, I love that story too, because Naaman, if I'm remembering right, he didn't even really want to go wash in the Jordan. Oh, no. no he, he was said, opposed. What, yeah. a, what a joke. This can't be real. Yeah. Well, why not one of, you know, the Syrian rivers? Why one in, you know, this lowly place called Israel? But he does it anyway. He's healed. He's grateful. But then Gehazi, he and his generation. So what did he have? And it just talks about turning white, White as snow, leprous. And so he just turned white all over. I'm wondering, was he afflicted maybe with albinism? You know what an albino mm-hmm. is? That's a genetic condition. It is a recessive condition. So you need two parents that have the gene to pass it on. But it still is something that could be passed through a family if you had enough members with it. Okay, at this rate, we'll never get to the New Testament. You know? <laughs> so as we move to the New Testament, Jesus heals people from leprosy a lot. Absolutely. And every time I hear that, I think... You know, in trying to figure out why was he healing so much leprosy, I think the stigmata of the time, but also to your point, Tom, it's something you could see. You could also see its absence. What a miraculous thing for it to be there and then not be there. Uh, He he does it several times, healing people from leprosy, doesn't he? He does. And and we'll talk about what that disease may have been. But what leprosy is today, even, you know, jumping past the New Testament, um, it's an infectious disease. Mm. It's in the same family as tuberculosis, and it's little organisms that only live inside cells. And the cells they live inside are cells that line our nerves. So it's called a Schwann cell. So it's like electrical wire has insulation. Our nerves have insulation. It's the insulation cells that the organism lives in. And it mainly, it's still present worldwide. There's still several hundred thousand cases a year in the world. Um, and it's mainly in areas of poor hygiene, not necessarily warm weather, because it used to be common in the Scandinavian countries because mm. leprosy is called Hansen's disease after a Norwegian doctor, Dr. Hansen, Armour Hansen, who described it a couple hundred years ago. Man, so how do people get leprosy? It's, it, it probably is the way we thought COVID was originally spread, mainly by droplets. So whereas COVID now seems to be also aerosolized, um, it's droplet spread, pulmonary spread, for leprosy. The thing is, only about 20% of people can even catch it. Mm. So 80% of us, by virtue of our own immune systems, will never get it. So it's not really as infectious as you would think watching the movies. Exactly. Not only that, but then the 20% who get it, they have to be in close contact with somebody Mm. for five to 20 years. That's why it took so long for even Father Damien in Molokai living in a leprosy colony to contract it. Wow. Wow. Now, it's interesting. 30 to 40% of people who contract it in the United States, guess where they get it from? Roadkill. Armadillos. Oh, uh, wow. Armadillo foot pads are one of the only places in the laboratory you can actually culture um, this 
bacteria. There's no artificial media you can culture leprosy in. Why is that? Uh, it's just very slow growing. It has specific nutritional requirements. It's just like trying to culture uh, the, uh, the wart virus. You okay. can't do it. You can only do it if you get human epidermal cells. So that sounds like something your mother would teach you as a kid. Stay away <laughs> from dead armadillos. <laughs> well, you know, it worked where I grew up because there's, I don't think there's ever been a single armadillo in Upper Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Now, you grew up in the South, however. That's and... right. I've seen an armadillo or two in my day, but uh, we stayed away from the dead ones. So, oh, um, and what's good about it, there's good treatment now, uh, antibiotics, uh, but you off, because the bacteria grows so slowly, you often have to be on them anywhere from 6 to 18 months. Wow. But after your very first dose of medication, you are no longer infectious to somebody else. Now, did some people Man. spontaneously, did it, did it resolve and heal itself? Or, or was this, there was no recovery <clears throat> from this? There are <clears throat> what they call multibacillary and posse-bacillary. Posse means very few bacteria. So people whose immune system was pretty strong, they would only get a couple areas on their skin. Mm -hmm. And the areas, they could be white. They, they could be purplish-red. The patient I saw in the Philippines had kind of purplish-reddish and just a couple of oval spots where the skin felt kind of hard. The medical word we use is indurated. And uh, the immune system's fighting it off pretty well. They're probably not going to spread it very much. It'll just linger with them, you know, on the skin for years. But then there are people whose immune system is much weaker, and then they can get a number of open sores on their body. And what's the connection with losing extremities? That's an excellent question. Because it infects the nerves, mm. the nerves don't function. The first thing that goes is feeling. So if you've got somebody who can't feel with their fingers when they're burning, they're bumping, they're yeah. cutting, that's the cause of it. Or there's something called... Um, uh, if you have trigeminal neuralgia or you have this thing where you're constantly, you can't feel your, your, your skin on your face or your nose, or people who literally peel wow. their nose away. But that's almost analogous to, in your specialty, you know, diabetic foot problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, when the nerves go, you injure it, but you don't know you injured it because pain has value. It's to tell you that something's broken or you stepped on something. Or people coming out of anesthesia oh. and they're constantly trying to rub Scratch their, their nose eyes, and yeah. eyes. And it's like, don't do that because you're, you're liable to actually injure yourself because you can't feel it. And that's exactly what goes on with leprosy. So that's why people have nubs on their hands or on their feet. From injury. From injury that they don't feel. Wow. Wow. So the, so the question is, if this wasn't leprosy back in Leviticus, how did the word leprosy get into the Bible? And this was fascinating, tracking this down. And, and it goes, the, the first time that leprosy was known in the area where the Bible was written, was not until about the 4th century B.C., 200 years after that passage in Leviticus was written. Wow. Mm. And it came from India. It's been known in India since about 600 B.C. And Alexander the Great brought back, how many was it? Was it like, yeah, 10,000 women were brought back and married in a public wedding from in, in the Middle East, brought from India. And shortly after that, uh, that an Alexandrian physician of Egypt describes the first case of true leprosy. Wow. Man. So, uh, so th there were two mistakes in translation of the Bible. One of them occurred in 600 B.C. When, when Leviticus was then translated into Greek, the Greeks had no word for seraot. Hmm. So they used a term elephantiasis graecorum. And elephantiasis, we think of as what? A thickening of the skin. Right. Which can happen in some cases of leprosy. Well, so then they put elephantiasis graecorum. And then a thousand years after that, around 900 BC, some uh, Arabic texts translated the Latin, the elephantiasis graecorum, to lepra graecorum. And lepra, like in leprosy, really means scaly. Hmm. So a disease nobody ever saw got accidentally translated into leprosy, which then in the 19th century was called Hansen's disease. Hmm. But it's not the same. Wow. So only our very own Tom McGovern could find mistakes of a biblical nature like that. But you mentioned two big mistakes. What's the second one? Well, the second one was the Arabic one. So the uh -huh. first one was calling Sarah elephantiasis graecorum and right. then changing that a thousand years later to leper graecorum. And then the first English translation of the Bible, uh, I think it might have been the, the Tyndale Bible, not approved by the church, uh, then used the word leprosy mm. in the 13th century. So were all of these diseases in biblical times, scaly in nature, or we don't know. It just says white, you know, white as snow, leprous. But the word leprous means scaly. But so we think that because the word leprous was used in the New Testament, um, or at least translated that way, 
that the disease is most likely represented here is psoriasis, uh-huh. uh, which is a really scaly disease where the skin is growing way faster than it should. It's interesting to, to think that that carried such a stigma back in biblical times. You know, I guess it's visually evident, but I mean, that the leprosy was really singled out for so many of the healings and things like that. It was, and it could have been a number of other scaly diseases. I mean, fungus infections, also scaly, mm. different types of eczema, uh, seborrheic dermatitis, you know, the scalp and the face, that would be very visible. Uh, but even some forms of scabies, which is, you know, infestation with a little mite, there are areas where the body is just full of this yellowish or whitish scale. You know, and routinely in our practices, we give people life-changing diagnoses. But if you got diagnosed with leprosy, that was quite literally life-changing. You were leaving your home. You were leaving your family. You were exiled probably for the rest of your life. And yet, most of the time, they could have been wrong. It was simple psoriasis. And what's really interesting is one of the best natural treatments in the world for psoriasis is bathing in the Dead Sea and exposing (laughs) yourself to sunlight. Yeah. I mean, that was the basis for a lot of treatments. Even when I went to medical school, you know, 30-some years ago at Mayo Clinic, they were you know, putting tar on people. Well, the salts in the Dead Sea had the same effect. Then they put them under ultraviolet light. Mm, well, sun. there you go. Helped a lot. But so what, what do you make of the leprous diseases going to the walls of the house and things of that nature? Th- that's ritual impurity. Uh-huh. So, and, and it could well have been, I mean, I used to work in biologic warfare research, and there's black molds, Dachybotrys atra, and they could make these poisons from it, but it's also the black mold you find growing in the walls of your house. Mm. Oh, really? I, so I think it was another sign of ritual impurity. And, and that's what all the articles say is that Sarah is better translated as sign of impurity. So what you were saying about Father Mike, and this was about ritual impurity, I think is right on target. Mm. Well, that seems like a great time to take a break. I think it is a good time to take a break. <laughs> and then we'll be back where we put Chris and Andrew on the hot seat here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with yet another disease from the Bible, hemorrhage this time. So we're going to Mark chapter 5. Chris is the expert, woman with a hemorrhage, the one who touches the hem of Jesus' garment. But what I really like, I think it puts us physicians in our place. It says there, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. What do you think when you read this, Chris? Yeah, I think modern medicine, not ancient, you know, <laughs> 50, 50 BC Palestinian times. But yeah, I mean, the idea that our patients endure, uh, you know, hardships because of us, it's just a reality. Now, we would say because of the disease process, hopefully, but the reality is sometimes our treatments, especially throughout the millennia, have been worse sometimes than the disease. I mean, if you think about some of our discussions with guests on this show about cancer treatments, yes. I mean, you say chemotherapy to people of our generation, right. and you think, I'll just take the cancer. You know? <laughs> yeah. The chemotherapy is worse. But that would be an example of enduring much. And, and in ancient times, and you know, arguably today, we, we, all, we had a tendency as physicians, and still do, I think, to sometimes forget the person and focus on the disease yes. and to forget that the whole person and that, yeah, I may be treating this condition, but I've really got to think about the entire person, the entire body, his or her family and their extended family. And we're not always good at that. It's pretty indicting because I think a lot of times patients come and you want to help them, but your toolbox is limited. Mm. You know, I can only think how limited it was back then, even right. more so. It's like, well, we got this, we got trephination, we got <laughs> bloodletting. This might be before bloodletting. Uh, let's try one of each and hope it helps. But I, I think that it's really indicting, especially on the medical side of things to say, you know, above all, do no harm. And there's a time to yeah. say, I've, I've got nothing for this. Nothing yeah. that I can be assured isn't going to cause harm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that idea of first do no harm, uh, it's ancient, but yet really relevant in the, in the way that we approach patients. So Chris, it says there that the woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years. What's a hemorrhage? Yeah, yeah great question. You know, we're always asking, at least in my specialty, we're asking about bleeding. But in any medical specialty, you know, when you take uh, a skin cancer off someone and they call and they say, I'm bleeding. 
Or do they say, I'm hemorrhaging? <laughs> Hopefully not hemorrhaging. Hopefully not hemorrhaging. <laughs> but it's kind of an emotional definition. You know, hemorrhaging yeah. is a lot of bleeding. Mm -hmm. Well, how much bleeding is hemorrhage? Well, that's really tough. It's a pathological amount. It's not a normal amount. I well, might wait, say... Wait, there can be a normal amount of bleeding? Well, you know, from some things. You know, say for menses, we're going to talk about menses. Especially oh, I, I in agree. gynecology, there's right. a normal amount of yeah, bleeding. Yeah, there's a normal amount of right. bleeding. Or if you cut your finger with a kitchen knife, it's going to bleed. Now, if you slice your radial artery with a kitchen knife, <laughs> it's going to hemorrhage. That's not normal. So I think we could <laughs> yeah. probably say hemorrhage is a dangerous amount of bleeding, amount of bleeding that scares a rational person. I think we'd call that probably a hemorrhage. So... What do you think would have been then the nature of this particular woman's suffering? For 12 years, she's got hemorrhaging going on. So what would this have meant for her physically, mentally, socially? Yeah, I mean, we're probably talking about today's term, we would say menorrhagia, which means heavy menses. Okay. Um, and, you know, the average healthy woman will tend to bleed as part of her menstrual function, maybe five to seven days uh, a calendar month or out of 30. What would the volume of blood loss be? Yeah, that's hard to know. Um, it, it, it's actually been studied, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> and it, it's hard to know. A more modern, uh, less scientific description would be it's not really disruptive. Uh, so when I'm seeing patients, I like to say, if you were a school teacher, could you teach a full class and not have that disrupted, not have your bleeding disrupt a full class? And if they say, oh, oh, yeah, you know, I don't have to change a pad or something, but, you know, maybe four times a day, as opposed to the woman who says, I could never make it an hour without changing, that's a lot more okay. bleeding. But the normal amount of menstrual flow is not disruptive, and it isn't going to injure the woman's health. She's not losing so much blood that she can't function because she's anemic uh, or volume depleted, as we say. So how would women back then have handled the blood flow? How would they have yeah, absorbed the, it? Yeah, the reality is it's awful. Uh, <laughs> and it, it wasn't really until recent times that, you know, hygienical products for menses became available. Uh, but we all know the old high school expression, on the rag. Yes. That was because women had no choice but to wrap linens and put them in their garments uh, and to try to stave the flow of blood. So that would be it would be bad and tough for normal menses. But this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. She's probably constantly bleeding. And if you, if you just think about it without being too clinical or literal, think about what life would have been like in ancient Palestine – if a woman was constantly bleeding, hygiene would have been impossible. There would have been a stench. Uh, there would have been a stench on her clothes. It's not like you could just run to the back of your house and do laundry. Um, so she was probably isolated. You know, the same thing happened with urinary incontinence after childbirth. The, the smell would cause those women to be isolated. Sure. Society would kind of treat them as lepers. As we said earlier, they would be outcasts. So she, I think that's a way to say... This woman was desperate. She had endured pain at the hands of her physicians. She was probably separated from her family and loved ones, and she was truly desperate. When when they say endured at the hands of the physician, <laughs> what what kind of treatments do you think they would have attempted mm -hmm. to try and help, and what would you attempt today? Yeah, you know, the history books are replete with really horrible things. Uh, you know, putting hot irons uh, up inside the uterus to try to cauterize. Now, ironically, we do that today, uh, a little less brutal Hopefully and under sedation. anesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But a lot of things were tried. There were potions that were tried. There were all kinds of uh, things that women ingested, things that women inserted into their vaginas. But it's really a display of how desperate they were to try to solve this problem. And, you know, you can actually bleed to death from pathological menstrual flow. And uh, it's certainly true that women often died uh, from abnormal menses, particularly following childbirth. Today in the world, the number one cause of maternal death is still hemorrhage after childbirth. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Not in America, but in the world. So if this woman came into your office today, yeah. what would you do? Well, you know, today, hopefully, me and my colleagues would take uh, a disease-based approach. We would try to diagnose the problem. So abnormal bleeding is often hormonal. The woman's not ovulating. Maybe her progesterone production is wrong, and that leads to dysfunctional, prolonged, maybe heavy bleeding. But she could also have a bleeding disorder like von Willebrand's disease sure. or hemophilia or some of those. 
But then other causes would be what we would say are structural causes. So maybe she could have polyps from the lining of the uterus that are just sitting there bleeding. Maybe she could have uterine fibroids or benign little tumors in the uterus that cause heavy bleeding. That would be very, very common. And of course, she could have had some combination of all of those things. Do you guys have an idea of what amount of abdominal surgery they did back then, if any? I really don't. Uh, abdominal surgery was very uncommon uh, in ancient times because it was almost universally fatal. Everybody died. Uh, in fact, in the old days, I learned about cesarean sections that were done what's called extraperitoneally so that you didn't have to get inside the peritoneal lining of the cavity because if you did, they would get an infection. There were no antibiotics. Yeah, we, 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 talk, we talked about that in a previous episode that um, <clears throat> the reason that uh, we know that Julius Caesar wasn't born by cesarean section mm. is his mother was alive right. when he was emperor. Yeah. That Abdominal surgery would have, you know, and you can read horrible stories about ancient barbers removing kidney stones. Uh, oh. They could get away with that because they went in the back. They didn't get into the peritoneal cavity. And the peritoneum uh, for our listeners is? It's the very thin microscopic lining that coats everything inside the abdominal and pelvic cavity. When you get peritonitis, that's very, very painful, that's an inflammation uh, of that peritoneum. Because many, many hemorrhaging problems nowadays, if, if they were severe or required it, could be fixed with surgery. Oh, sure. But that wasn't an option for her yeah, probably. Yeah, clearly well, not. A Catholic point on the peritonitis, <clears throat> an infectious peritonitis is why they believe St. Giannamola died after her childbirth. Uh, yeah, mm. that's right. That's a good, that's a good trivial point. So there weren't a lot of great options available. Um, and, and there weren't images. You know, now I can do an ultrasound and I can see if a woman has a fibroid or a polyp. And Andrew can do really advanced blood testing to figure out if they have hemophilia or von Willebrand's disease or any of the blood clotting factors are genetically missing. You know, that clearly wasn't available then. So, you know, a, a woman that had this was really condemned to a horrible death. And if you think about it, I think that makes the story more beautiful. Because she was desperate, and she heard of this man, Jesus, was coming through the town, and all she wanted to do was just touch the hem of his garment. Uh, she had so much faith, and she was so desperate that, that that was all that she had available to her. But yet she thought if she just touched his garment, she might be healed. That makes the story even better. It does. Are there people who come to see you because of your soothing medical ways. I don't know. I'd like to think so, but <laughs> you'd have to ask them about that. Maybe well, some days more soothing than others. How, how about that indicting aspect of the quote? How often do you think today people come to see the doctor and they, they endure much and don't benefit? Yeah, I mean, I think we could all probably think of examples of that. You know, I, I think that the, the most egregious crime that we commit in medicine on a daily, if not hourly basis, is lack of empathy. Oh, you know, my. it isn't lack of technology. It isn't lack of knowing what to do. It's lack of really identifying with the person's suffering. Whether you're treating depression or asthma or I'm treating hemorrhage or you're treating skin cancer. I mean, you know, in reality, the patient is probably going to get treatment, at least in America today. But she may not get empathy. Um, and that's where I think we could really harm people the most. And how does this play into the, the placebo effect? I mean, people with true organic problems actually do improve when there is no specific medical treatment that helps because of they think they're going to get better with yeah. something. Yeah, we've had guests on here talk about the placebo effect. Right. Maybe 30% in some research trials. Right. If you just give them a sugar pill, their condition gets better. And Frankly, not just psychological ones. Yeah. I always wonder if it isn't the empathy. Someone is doing something for me. Right. They're giving me some medicine. Therefore, I feel better uh, and I'm going to heal myself. Uh, but the reality also is, despite our very best efforts as physicians, you know, we're designed really, really well. And a lot of times, you know, if we just wait, things get better. And diseases, we cure them ourselves with our immune system and the magical healing properties that our creator instilled in us. Well, and I'm, I'm constantly reminded of how little we actually know in medicine. <laughs> I mean, it depends what you compare it to, but you look 200 years ago, we look great. But then on a daily basis, Patients come in and ask, okay, so what, why does this happen? What, what's the cause of this? I'm like, uh, nobody knows. Actually, if you look at the mechanism of action of this drug, it says uh, not understood. <laughs> but we use it all the time. Yeah, but we can't you say know. that in medicine because it feels too silly. So we call it 
idiopathic. Idiopathic. Oh, I love that word. Yeah. We yeah, used to say in medical school, the idiot doesn't understand the pathology. Yeah, that would be me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's funny. Man. Is it my turn yet? I don't know. What else do we need to know about this woman with the hemorrhage? Yeah. I, I mean, again, we talked about the beauty of her uh, touching his him and how awful life would have been for her. But I think, uh, I think back again, it sounds like we're doing an infomercial for Father Mike Schmitz, but um, <laughs> I got to make, make sure he hears us. I don't us. think he needs us either. <laughs> but remember, she would have also... Still taking sponsors, Father Mike. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been ritually unclean. Yeah, because blood. You know, right. blood is a big deal. And in Judaism... For how um, long? Yeah, there's a certain proscribed number of days after the woman's menstrual flow completed, and it's even more complicated after childbirth. And in sometimes in treating fertility, I've had Jewish patients that they struggled to get fertility-focused intimacy to occur because of the number of days of oh, cleanliness and ritual yes. cleansing after bleeding. Mm. But Father Mike points out that it's, it's because blood is a big deal. It is the life, life. force. Blood is life. Uh, and so blood uh, has got to be treated in a special way. But she would have been ritually unclean. She would have not been allowed to go to temple, which is probably where she would have wanted to go to, to pray for healing. So it's just another example of how she would have been a complete outcast. But she could go to the ultimate tabernacle and just touch his gown, which is really kind of beautiful the way that works. And I uh, think that the juxtaposition, too, with the lepers and this, this woman who would have been so isolated mm. and Jesus welcomes them. Right. You know, that's yeah. such a, a great picture. And the other part I love of that story story is, you know, most of the time in medicine, or I should say a lot of the time, we don't know what we've done or what we've not done. We lose track of the patients to follow up, as they say. But when she just touched his gown, he knew. He felt something. Yes. You yeah, know, power he's, went out he's so powerful and so in tune that he knew something just occurred, and he turns and he looks at her, uh, and he tells her that her faith has healed her. I just love that reading. It gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. That is a beautiful transition into... Andrew's topic for today, which is palsies, atrophies, and epilepsy. So let's move on. To I get the extras. <laughs> you, this is you like do the potpourri. Other here. duties as assigned, Andrew. <laughs> That's right. So let's move on to Capernaum. Okay, Capernaum was in the, the day that we're recording this. It was in the, um, the gospel. Capernaum is where the synagogue was, where Jesus preached about the Eucharist. That's in John 6. I've had my picture taken in this synagogue with a sun protective hat on. I have it in my room so patients can ask, what are you doing? I'm showing you the kind of hat to wear. And this is where Jesus <laughs> talked about, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you will not have life within you. But anyway, something else happened in Capernaum relevant to Andrew here. And that is, that is where the centurion came forward and said he has a servant at home lying paralyzed at home in distress, and Jesus heals him. So, Andrew, it seems like there's a fair amount of paralysis, mm -hmm. sometimes called palsies or lameness, in the New Testament times in Israel, including that man, and the man lowered through the roof, uh, and a man that even Peter healed named Aeneas. So what do you think was going on with these patients? Hard to say. <laughs> Hard to say. Paralysis, uh, just like we might metaphorically say paralyzed by fear, mm. paralysis just means you can't move. Uh, either totally or one part. A lot of times you'd mention the word palsy. We just did the episode on cerebral palsy. Oh, yes, um, yes. But you can have palsy of anything, any nerve. You what can does have. palsy mean? Palsy, I would say, means that that nerve is weak and does not function appropriately, mm. and it translates to a lack of motor function Okay. so that you can't move the, the, the muscles innervated by that nerve. But, you know, literally, to not move is to, to be dead. You know, and we've we've had, uh, I think, of our orthopedic surgeon that was in charge of, you know, back surgery. Yes. He yes. said motion is lotion to yes. the joints. But it, uh, and what do we do in the hospital right after a surgery? We get people up and we make them move yes. because if you can't move, you're in trouble. Yeah. Uh, so these patients that were paralyzed, they were they were headed to an ugly death. Well, I, I don't think they had the social safety nets that we do nowadays mm -hmm. either. So if people couldn't move, you couldn't work, you couldn't, you know, there's no indoor plumbing, you know, yeah. you couldn't provide for yourself. So that's why so many of these people ended up as beggars and they had to rely on, 
on begging mainly to stay alive, especially if, if they were in, in some ways so incapacitated they couldn't care for themselves. Talk about being outcast again. Yeah. Unless you have really good friends like the, the guy who got lowered down on the roof, <laughs> um, you better have a really good personality, I guess, because you, you can't <laughs> contribute yeah. with activity yeah. or productivity or anything like that. But that speaks to what great guys they were that lowered him through the roof because generally somebody paralyzed – would have just been left to their own accord, right. uh, and it wouldn't have gone well. But they cared enough about him to try to get him get him treatment. And I think that's one of the reasons why paralysis in particular is mentioned so often in the Bible, because this was another example of someone who was was really doomed and mm. could not take care of themselves. And look, even from this, Jesus can, can rescue you. Well, I think one of the most astounding ones is, uh, and it's shown in the Chosen TV series, is the guy who was 38 years mm. at the pool of Siloam, and he, you know, the, the angel supposedly stirred up the water, and the first one in might be healed, and he was never there, the That's first the right one. Time. I mean, what would life have been like for him? I I can't even imagine, you know, because especially something like that, first of all, you're not going anywhere fast, but you are going to necessarily be preoccupied with trying to find healing mm-hmm. because that's really the only the only excuse for hope because if if there's really no hope and so many things oh. of paralysis and palsies, things of that nature usually have a poor prognosis even yeah. today. Mm-hmm. I mean, a relatively poor prognosis. There's things that you can do to optimize, but um, maybe maybe the most common example people could think of would be a, a person they may have known who has suffered from a stroke. Mm-hmm. Right. And after a stroke, there's there's things you can do to optimize, but it never really goes back to like it was before. Now, with the shorter lifespans back then, and probably healthier diets, I'm thinking strokes are probably less common. What do you think? I'm not sure. I would say maybe more common. Because? Well, I think the causes were probably different. Ah. So many of the causes of stroke now, I'd say number one would be age, number two would be like metabolic disease, people eating poorly, being overweight, um, smoking, things of that nature. I don't think they had smoking back then. So (laughs) in some ways the causes were very different, but especially in developing countries, there's other causes for strokes. Um, one of the biggest ones I'd be thinking of would be infectious causes. Yeah. You know, really? Parasitic infections. They can cause strokes. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of that. And traumatic causes as well. I mean, if you think about, there's no OSHA back then. You know? <laughs> Can't imagine these poor folks building the pyramids or whatever they did. You know, they didn't have harnesses. Yeah. And, uh, building I mean, inspectors, yeah. Yeah, no building inspectors. I mean, traumatic causes of palsies and paralysis, yeah. I would say probably extraordinarily common because... Even now, we have really good trauma surgeons. You get in a car wreck or something, they're going to try and put you back together right now. Yes. If you wait a week, it's I mean, different. yeah, that nerve is severed. It's not going back together. Yeah. Well, Luke 6, there's a man healed with a withered hand in the synagogue on a Sabbath. What's a withered hand? Withered hand, that's good. I, I would say that that is related to a previous chronic long-standing neurologic damage. Mm. So maybe trauma, maybe trauma mm-hmm. could be traumatic, could be cerebral palsy, could be a remote uh, cerebral vascular insult, which is for our listeners, some kind of stroke. Okay. And, and a stroke is really what it's lack of blood flow to nerves in the brain. Mm-hmm. And so nerve cells die either because there's bleeding into the brain or there's yeah, uh, area dies, then not enough blood gets there. Yeah, any anything that would make that nerve pathway, that electrical pathway, die, and after the pathway dies, and, and even kind of slow motion, if a nerve gets entrapped, you know, first you have some numbness that comes and goes, mm-hmm. and then you have the burning and tingling mm-hmm. like your arm fell asleep, and then that never goes away; it's always there, and then after that, you become progressively more numb; you can't feel anything. And beyond that, you have the the motor nerves affected as well, where the muscles atrophy, and we'll see that even in people with like advanced carpal tunnel disease, where their hands, you're supposed to have these nice meaty muscles below your thumb across your palm. Those just wither away, and you can almost see the bones through their skin. Yeah, that'd be a withered hand. Because the nerve is dead. Yeah. Yeah, What's the condition, Andrew, where your finger contracts and it gets stuck in that in that position. Uh, There's a couple. You can have a locking. Yes. A locking um, there, and you can also have 
a contracture as Yes, well. the contracture. That's the one I was thinking of. Years ago, I went on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and we saw all of these men that had those contractures, and you think, what is the big deal? Your finger is just a little messed up. Well, it's a huge deal if you provide food for your family yes. by working in the sugarcane fields. Yes. Oh, yeah. You know, so that and hernias, you know, in America, we think it's an inconvenience. But uh, in third world countries, it's not. It's a it's a death sentence because if you can't produce, if you can't use your hands and your back to do lifting and labor, you and your family are going to perish. Uh, so we, we take that for granted. But a, a withered hand in biblical times, I'm sure that would have been uh, a devastating diagnosis. And then finally on to epilepsy. In, in Matthew mm. 17, there's a dad mm. who pleads with Jesus to help his son who throws himself into the fire because of seizure, seizures. What does it mean to have epilepsy? Man, epilepsy is still terrible even today, although there's more hope for folks. E- epilepsy is basically when you have seizures. and A seizure is? A, a seizure is basically where the patient would go non-responsive and have involuntary motor, uh, and sometimes not even just motor, but usually motor um, spasms. So and, the muscles are moving all over the place. And some would say sort of an electrical storm in the brain, right? Yes. And and it's something that the patient loses control, where now there's there's so many different types of seizures where you can have partial seizures where you're still conscious. But classically, what you would think of would be a tonic-clonic kind of grand mal seizure, where the patient falls to the ground. Um, there may be some foaming at the mouth. They lose continence of their bowel and bladder. And then even after the seizure stops, they're not breathing very well during the seizure, mm-hmm. and then they're totally out of it for several hours. Yeah. And you can imagine if you're at a height or near a campfire or fishing or, heck, anything. You and know. if they weren't breathing and the seizure lasted long enough, they would just expire from the seizure. And I assume there's no treatment for this back then. I can't think that there would be any really good ones. All the treatments that are more common now are very technical medicines and some surgical procedures. So they were entirely dependent on other people, and they probably couldn't hold most jobs. Yeah, I would say that's that's so, because it really wouldn't be safe to do. I mean, even now, people with, with seizure disorders, especially epilepsy, where you have frequent predictably unpredictable seizures. You don't know when it's coming. <laughs> you can't drive a car. You can't function in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. And you need to be, you need to have somebody with you, especially if you're, I mean, even you're trying to climb stairs at home. I mean, it could happen any time. You have no warning. It yeah. just happens. So, sometimes there's, there's seizure disorders where they can feel it coming on, but many times they can't. It's a total surprise. Mm. But, but now there is treatment for most of these patients. Loads of different medicines, which is a huge blessing. And I'd I guess I don't have the exact numbers per se, but the vast, vast majority of people have really good control of their epilepsy when they seek out appropriate care and and take the treatments. And sometimes even surgical treatments where, you know, we have the EEG study that will, will look at the brain waves and can pinpoint the part of the brain that's starting the seizure. And sometimes they even remove parts of the brains or sever them if that's the one place that always starts a seizure, if you cut off that pathway, it's almost like some of the ablative procedures we do in the heart, then it can't start that electrical Mm. storm. You know, when I think about seizures in ancient times, uh, I think about the stigmata that must have gone, because it's still true today. Someone that has a seizure in the mall is is going to be looked at oddly. Imagine what that would have been like then. They would have thought they were demonically possessed or they had done something evil themselves. I mean, it's, it's a terrible stigmata today, but then that's unimaginable. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a blessing we have so many good techniques and treatments now. Amen. Well, please let us know if you like this episode. There are many others we could do of diseases in the Bible here on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back with the answer to the trivia question now after the break. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question. I almost spoiled it in my section, Tom. But But you didn't. Here we are. Excellent self-control, Andrew. So what was trepanation? Well, trepanation is putting a hole through your skull. (laughs) I mean, that simply is just, you know, drilling and... It, would, it was actually used to treat what they thought were mental diseases. Um, but if somebody had fallen and lost consciousness, if, if they had a bleed mm. on their brain, that was the right treatment. And there are a number of ancient skulls as old as 6500 B.C., right. yeah, wow. 8500 years ago, where they had healed. 
So the person survived the procedure, multiple persons. Can you imagine the informed consent discussion, (laughs) what that would have looked like? Something along the lines of, I want you to hold still. I'm going to drill a hole in your head. I'm just thinking that, okay, this worked one time or like maybe (laughs) twice. But you keep doing hundreds of these. You're like, oh, twice, 2% out of of the time it'll help. You know, 98, it doesn't. You're in trouble. Well, well, in some places, they say that half of the skulls with that had evidence of healing. Wow. Wow. Which, it, to me, is just tremendous. Speaks yeah. to the tra- trauma causes for a lot of these Well, it, it speaks to enduring pain at the hands of the physicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, no or the kidding. mason. Yeah. yeah. So our top three takeaways for this, you know, so we each have one. Mine from the leprosy is don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a person by its cover. Just because they look different than you, we can still, you know, treat them as a human being. Um there. <laughs> my, my takeaway would be it, it doesn't matter what the disease, how bad it is, physical or spiritual, Jesus is the divine physician. Mm. and He's the one that's going to be able to bring you out of wherever you're at. Amen. That's a good one. Yeah, I can't not think about my favorite saint, uh, St. John Paul II, and this, this idea of human dignity and that yes. every person deserves to be treated well simply because they're a person. They're created in the image and likeness of God. So whether you're a leper or whether you're a hemorrhaging paralytic, you know, we Today, we have to remember that those patients have to be treated with dignity, that there's, there's no disease that trumps the dignity of the human person. Amen. On that note, we thank you for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top where you can search over 260 episodes by topic or guest. And if you're watching this episode, you know that now we're doing video episodes. You can find us in our podcast. Just click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. And finally, if you have a question or an idea for an episode topic, like this episode was, (laughs) click where it says submit a question and let us know what you think. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.